I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Sometimes remembering will lead to a story which makes it forever. That's what stories are for. Stories are for joining the past to the future. Stories are for those late hours in the night when you can't remember how you got from where you were to where you are. Stories are for eternity, when memory is erased, when there is nothing to remember except the story. Those are the words of Tim O'Brien from his classic novel, The Things They Carried. Many of you know Tim from that seminal work or from others like Northern Lights, or If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home, or the National Book Award for Fiction winner, Going After Cacciato. He has been a writer for the Pittsburgh set NBC show, This Is Us, was recently heard in Ken Burns' PBS miniseries, The Vietnam War, and is here celebrating Dad's Maybe Book, his latest publication. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm delighted. I'm going to say up front that as a writer, I am in awe of your writing. It's an honor to thank have you here. Thanks. You've commented in other venues that you wanted to be a writer since you were a kid. But you've also said that you didn't feel you needed to be a writer until you actually found yourself having experienced combat. And I'm just curious if you would share with us a little bit about your journey to writing and what made you want to be a writer who commented on important social issues. I grew up as a lover of books from the time I was seven, maybe even six years old. Books were a way of escaping a tough home environment. My dad was an alcoholic and things were stressful around the house. And I tended to lock myself in my bedroom and leave the anxieties of the household behind and enter the adventure of whatever story I was reading. The book world seemed to me in some ways more real than the world I was really living in, which seemed in many ways, this can't be happening. Mm. The love for books was fed by my dad, who was himself a big reader when he was sober. And I can remember an evening, wintertime in southern Minnesota, getting dark outside, snow falling, and my dad seated in a chair in the living room reading a book. He was sober, he had a little smile on his face, and he looked so full of contentment and peace as he looked into the pages of that book. And I remember wishing desperately that I was that book, mm. that he would look at me mm. the way he looked into the pages of that book, so peaceful and no anger and simmering rage going on inside him, just at peace. And that image is among the five or six images of my life that are totally indelible, I'll never leave it. And soon afterward, I began writing as a kid, little one or page vignettes about things that happened at school or in my life as a child. I abandoned writing once I got into high school or so and all through college where academics took over. But when I, my life collided with Vietnam, I felt that I not only wanted to write, but had to write. It was a way of relieving the pressure on my spirit and on my dreams. 
and it became a life-saving thing. I'm not sure that I would have ended up a, a reasonably functional man had I not had this outlet put down the horror on paper. The image you just painted from your childhood of looking at your dad and wishing you were that book, that's an extraordinary image. I, I take it you were afraid of your dad. I was. I went so far as to set up an alarm system in my bedroom, a couple of little bells and some threads. If the door opened, I'd be alerted. I remember going up one night and taking all the sharp knives out of the kitchen drawers and hiding them in my bedroom. He was not a bad man. It was, it was chemistry. Mm. Sober, he was intelligent, thoughtful, great with kids, beloved with my, my friends. I remember one friend saying to me, I, I wish I had your dad. Little did he know what was happening in that house right. when things, right. when the alcohol took over. So I don't mean to in any way demean or badmouth my father. In some ways, he was just a great father, but he was dependent on alcohol. I remember feeling shame in a small town to be the son of a town drunk. My dad was institutionalized a couple of times, and I remember on one of those occasions having to go to Little League practice and tell my teammates that our coach, my dad, I wasn't going to be there anymore. And the images of my dad, especially that image of him reading when he was sober and gentle and thoughtful, made me want to write. Did you ever show him any of the childhood writing that you did? Did you try to share that with him? I can't remember. <laughs> I, yeah. I probably didn't, but I really don't remember. We hear so often in life that you were given a gift by somebody who also hurt you that you were afraid of him, but he also gave you the gift of reading. I remember a day when I was maybe 11 years old, he came into my bedroom on Saturday afternoon with a big fat book, and it was complete stories of Ernest Hemingway. And he told me, I want you to read five of these stories. You can pick them yourself, and I want you to talk to me about them, which is what a good teacher would do. Yeah. Well, I was paralyzed because the book was so fat and I remember skimming through it finding the shortest possible stories one was one page long every, every kid's trick right. <laughs> right but one of them I picked was a very short story that turned out to be so hard I didn't get it it was called cat in the rain by Ernest Hemingway and it was essentially a couple lying in a or not lying man is lying reading a book in a hotel room in Italy and his wife looks out the window and it's raining and she sees a cat out in the rain. And finally she goes down to get the cat out of the rain and the cat's gone and she comes back to the hotel room. And then a maid comes in or with a cat. Was it the same cat? I don't know. I was bewildered. I think I was just so puzzled. And I remember thinking, God, I got to talk to my dad about this. And I had no idea what to say, which is pretty much how my own kids have responded to the stories of Hemingway that I've given to them. <laughs> so you've done this. I, give, I gave my older son, Timmy, who's now 16, but at the time this happened, he was 11. I gave him a story of Hemingway's called The Killers to read, and it's about a boxer who has thrown a fight. 
and uh, some gambler has sent two thugs to kill him, guys on the run. And so Timmy read the story, and I said, what did you think of it? And Timmy said, uh, well, I really, I really wasn't thinking much about the story. Don't boxers get hit in the face? And I said, yeah. And Timmy said, and don't they hit other people in the head? And I said, yes. And Timmy said, what I was thinking about was, why would anybody want to ever be a boxer? Which has nothing to do with the story. That's <laughs> kind of how I felt as a child. I was thinking about different things in the content of the book. They'd taken me elsewhere, as it does with adults as you read book. You'll read a passage even as an adult, and it will take me someplace beyond where the author wanted to go. And in many ways, a book is, is like an encounter between strangers. You sort of brush up against each other. And a lot of what we take from books is taken by our personalities and our histories and so on. And an author can only control so much. And I've learned that as a writer as well. So you said you, you sort of gave up writing in high school and then you go to Vietnam. How did that happen for you? It was a standard story. I was drafted almost immediately upon graduating from college. I was opposed to the war. I thought you should only kill people if you were pretty sure it was the right thing to do. And America wasn't. So I was opposed and uh, received a draft notice. And was immediately confronted by the moral decision. What do you do with your body? Do you let it go to Vietnam? Or do you put it in jail or in Canada or Sweden? Mm-hmm. And you're 21 years old, and you're thinking those kind of thoughts. They're, they're killing. Yeah. I love my country. I love my hometown. I love my mom and dad. I love my friends, my girlfriend. Epic choices. I mean, just so shattering, and there were, there were no other alternatives. I wasn't a conscientious objector. So I couldn't do that. The reserves were full. The National Guard was full. It was either jail, Canada, or Vietnam. I can remember lying in bed all after getting that notice for the next two months, late at night, couldn't sleep, and just basically hallucinating, imagining myself running through the woods of Canada with barking dogs and searchlights and... Jane Fonda chasing me along with, you know, LBJ through the woods and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It was, a, it was as if I were on some very powerful drug. Hmm. And then I'd hallucinate about war itself. What if I take that path? And I'd imagine my legs gone and death all around me and how terrified I would be. I was the kind of person who had hated Cub Scouts, <laughs> and, and here, here I am being drafted to fight a war. Right. Eventually, I didn't really decide anything. I defaulted. It's kind of this moral forfeiture. I just let one day I got out of bed, and my dad drove me to a bus station in my little hometown. Got on a bus with two or three other guys, and taken to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where I was inducted into the Army, and from there to Fort Lewis, kind of did a sleepwalking thing all through basic training and all through advanced infantry training, thinking this isn't real. It felt like a bad dream that somebody's going to save me, that the war will end. There were peace talks going on in Paris, and maybe they'll end this thing. So I didn't pay much attention to the things I was supposed to be learning, like 
how to shoot a weapon and how to disassemble it. And I thought, I, I'm not, this won't really happen. And then one day, I got orders for Vietnam and found myself getting off an airplane in Vietnam and doing the nasty daily grinding work of what a war is. I had thought that somehow the Army would make me a typist or a clerk or, because I, I was a college graduate and I had great grades and I had a graduate school fellowship to Harvard after the war was over. I mean, I was not standard foot soldier material, but that's what I did for my tour in Vietnam, was sleep in the rain and go out on ambushes, daily patrols, watching people die all around me. Mm. You said at one point, Vietnam made me really need to write. It was a sort of write-or-die feeling. Did that start in Vietnam? It did. It started not on patrol. I mean, then you just want to stay alive and not out on ambush. But there's a ritual at night in the infantry where when the day is over, you, we'd find high ground and we'd dig foxholes, then stare out at the dark. Mm. But in the hour before dark, that kind of twilight hour where guys would be sitting at their foxholes and most guys would horse around and tell stories about their hometowns and their girlfriends and I would often spend, not often, that's an exaggeration, but now and then would get out a piece of paper and write little vignettes about what had happened that day, one page, handwritten or two pages, and try to capture the feel of what happened that day. Not with any thought of publication. Mostly, I imagined these scraps of paper being found in my body and my mom and dad could read them mm. and know what was going through my head. The stuff was written such as it was, 30 pages maybe maximum during the war itself in this twilight hour as dark was coming in and the horrible nights began. So 19 months in this place. I was in Vietnam for only 13 of those okay. months. The rest of it was basic training and AIT before yeah. I got there. I, the Army had a program where you could get out early, out of the Army early, if you extended your tour in Vietnam, which is what I did. I didn't want to go back to some fort after the war and shine my shoes and salute my inferiors and all that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> You write so much about this. What do those of us who have not served in war get wrong about war? I ask this in the context of an America that is now 18 years into the present conflict, and we're sending 18-year-olds to mm -hmm. fight in Afghanistan and, and who knows where else in a conflict that began before they were born. How should we be properly framing the concept of war? Well, I think you can start with the word war, period. War on poverty, global war on terror, war on drugs. The word war has become a kind of euphemism. And I've written a new book, and one of the chapters is a proposal that we erase the word war from all our dictionaries, from the Gettysburg Address, from the U.S. Constitution. Congress will no longer declare war. They will declare the intent to kill people, including children, and to substitute the words killing people, including children, for the word war, hmm. because that's what it is. We're not killing goldfish or muppets. 
It's a people-killing enterprise. And I would submit that it would be a lot easier, or, or more difficult, rather, for someone to stand up at a PTA meeting or a Kiwanis Club meeting and say, I think we should kill people, including children. But the word war has been so... It's not even a word anymore. It, it, it conjures up, for me, virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. So when you ask the question, what is it we don't understand it's my answer is pretty much everything everything the word is infectious it's epidemic it's it riddles our language but it's a substitute a euphemistic substitute for horror my kids for example i think have been watch one too many videos in which the killing is artificial, you know, just killing pixel villains and things like this. And I think that dilutes the horror of it all. I think they have the vague notion that war is glamorous in some ways. And I did a little exercise with my kids when they were maybe 10 and 9. I had them go out on a forced march with their mother. <laughs> I, I was too old to do it. I'm 72 years old, so she led the forced march. It was a 16-mile march, and I made them, I put, remember, I loaded up these 20-pound sacks of sugar and put them in there and made them carry cans of peaches and for a heavy load. I uh, made them carry rubber boots because they, could, they couldn't go on roads. I made them, they had to walk through fields in Texas, heading to a little town called Manchaca, about eight miles from our house, and then back. Just to give them the notion that just, just a simple drudgery and fatigue and monotony that is the context of combat. It's not all pulling the trigger and firefights. Most of it is just exhausting, fatiguing, mind-dulling labor. Hard on the body and harder on the head, on the spirit. Then I asked them afterward to write an essay. Is war glamorous? That was their essay question when they returned from this forced march. So among the things that is not known about wars are the effects of sheer raw fatigue on the human spirit. It dulls your moral gyroscope. You're tired enough. You've been going without sleep for weeks on end. You're at night, you're on guard, right. so you don't get killed. Right. And then during the day, you're supposed to go on all these missions. And then people start dying all around you, and you get, you don't have that buffer of restraint. So you start shooting water buffalo and chickens and hogs and peeing in village wells and taking out your f- frustrations without that interceding moral barrier that most of us carry around in civilian life. So I don't think the raw nastiness of war is, is wholly comprehended. What do you say to people who, you know, I've talked about this with a lot of veterans who almost without exception have shared concern about the 18-year war continuing the legal killing of people, including children, to use your phrase, your proposal. And they worry about what is now being referred to as the forever war. But they're almost afraid to discuss it publicly because it's seen as unpatriotic. They worry it will be seen as unpatriotic, or they worry that it will be seen as unsupportive of the troops who are 
over there now and having to deal with all that you just described. How can our society have an honest conversation about what's happening if we're afraid to bring it up? My answer is we can't and we don't. We're terrified as a country of saying anything that has even the tinge of uh, that's not patriotic and that's not supporting our troops. It's like being afraid of the truth. And we prefer to duck our heads and bury our consciences uh, out of a kind of terror. In this book that's coming out in October, I wrote a chapter about beheading. I started with a quote from George Orwell. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And then I said, for years, Americans have been appalled by YouTube beheadings by Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban, and rightfully appalled. On the other hand, for the same number of years, Americans have snoozed through our own beheadings, drones, artillery, rockets, bombs, and we're not appalled. Anybody who thinks that an artillery round doesn't behead you hasn't seen the effects of an artillery round or a bomb. They behead, and they don't just behead. They be body. They turn to mush the human body. But no one's appalled. Is one beheading more moral than another? Is one more bloodless? Is one more less gory or more gory? Is one more righteous than the other? It's an example of hypocrisy on a grand political scale. We'll, we'll erase, we do exactly the same sort of things, but one is evil. And not just that, it's a political justification for the war. They're barbarous, they're savage. And the moral justification for a war, it falls apart because we're doing the same sorts of things on a, on a much larger scale. Well, Having said that, anybody who listens to this podcast and who's of the conservative ilk is going to be screaming bloody murder. But what I've said is not false, it's true. And yet, I'm going to lose with a new book. A whole bunch of readers are going to take my book when they get to that chapter and they're going to throw it out the window or into the toilet. Yeah, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people things they don't want to hear. But there are consequences to that. Um, And I think we're afraid of the consequences, and I was afraid of them until I got old enough not to be afraid anymore. (laughs) Well, thank you for your courage on that, and I love that quote. What strikes me most is that we're not living in a moment where that is the ethos of the country. We actually live in a moment where people seem to want to be told what they want to be told, and that seems to be the rule of the game. So it takes courage to do what you've done, especially, I think, on this issue. It takes old age. (laughs) (laughs) You live long enough, you stop worrying about things like that. Well, you know, I'm thinking about the folks who are currently engaged in combat or the veterans who have come back. There was a Washington Post interview with post-9-11 veterans recently marking the 18th year of war. And one veteran of the war in Afghanistan who was interviewed said he and his colleagues feel something is, quote, unfinished. And he added, maybe this is how Vietnam War veterans felt. Is there a level of commonality around the unfinished nature of the conflict? Around that and many, many, many other things. I feel more at home with fellow veterans of ages, say, you know, 
24 to 35 than I do with virtually anyone else whom I encounter in my life. We share so much. There is an unfinished feel, and in a way, I guess, unfinishable feel to both wars. Wars don't end when you come home. They go on and on in memory, but they also go on and on with your wife and your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your children, because they suffer the consequences of war as well. A father silent at the dinner table who can't talk and won't talk about it, hides it all. The, the casualties of wars go on and on to the last widow is gone and the last child or grandchild of a veteran. They echo through history. God knows what's happened in my own case. I was 21 years old. That was 50-some years ago that Vietnam and, you know, happened to me. And here I am. And it's 2019, and I'm sitting here talking to you. And I feel it all rushing back. It's not over. In essence, what you've done is taken us from the outer life to the inner life as well, that it is unfinished and, in both respects. And the, life, and the lives of my kids, 16 and 14 years old, and they have to endure right. my cussing and my bad temper and my anger with yelling at the television set when I hear these you know, warmongers so blithely sending other people off to get killed. Not themselves, I mean, the, not their kids, not their wives, other people. And it made me angry when I was young, and it makes me even angrier now. If you support a war, there should be a law. You, you have to go. Mm. And you should have to send your children. And if you don't want to do that, you're, in my opinion, a hypocrite on a colossal, immoral scale. You're telling other people, you go kill people and you go die, but not me and not my kids, not my family. Do you worry that the volunteer army makes it too easy for politicians just to make those decisions? I'll and not say. Have, so the class making the decision is not the class bearing the burden? Way too easy. The wolf isn't at the doorstep yapping at you saying, you're going to go. You're going to go the way it was back when there was a draft. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. I used to know the percentage of people who actually are part of the, the all-volunteer army, but it's fractional, very, very small. And only for those people does the imminent threat of death and killing enter their lives. The rest of us can pay our taxes and support the war in that sort of sense, but not with our blood. And it's so easy to be bellicose and belligerent in your rhetoric if you have no personal consequences. It's too easy to be belligerent and to be simple-minded in your belligerence. What, what, how, many, what, how many Americans actually know the difference between a Sunni and a Shiite Muslim? <laughs> like, if you gave it multiple-choice yeah. test, how many could find a rack on a map? What do you say to people, though, who say, okay, but Tim, we live in a dangerous world, and we were attacked on 9-11. We continue to face threats from bad actors operating out of these places, and war is, by definition, ugly. So that's just the yeah. way it is. How do you, when you hear well, that argument, yeah. how do you, I, I how do you say react to about the 9-11 argument? I'd say, yeah, we were attacked, and we should strike back. But we shouldn't strike back against Canadians and people in Fiji and Chile. You strike back against the people who did it, don't you? 
and we didn't. We didn't. We went to war in Afghanistan, a war that's now gone on 18, almost 19 years, a long time. Part of the equation also, though, is the rhetoric of the war. We don't want the smoking gun, said George Bush, said mm-hmm. Condoleezza Rice, said Dick Cheney. We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. Mm-hmm. It was the whole weapons of mass destruction right. thing that planted immense fear. That's why we supported the war. That was the cause of our going in. It was not just 9-11. It had to do also with weapons of mass destruction. Well, there were no weapons of mass destruction. George Bush has conceded it. He says he's embarrassed by it. The cause of the war didn't happen. It didn't exist. Beyond that, the mushroom cloud rhetoric was couched in absolutist terms. Bush, Rice, and Cheney especially used the words no doubt over and over. Tennant used the word slam dunk for sure, absolutely, no doubt that things exist that didn't exist. That kind of rhetoric is fear-mongering on the, on the Orwellian sense. And that's my main feel is the abandonment of reason and the abandonment of moderation and thoughtfulness and the abandonment of moral standards. That's what really terrifies me. And part of that abandonment is a kind of resignation across our country. We're just resigned. Oh, there's a war. We better say thank you to our troops when they come home. And we better not do anything to rock the boat. Look, one can ask practical questions, too. I mean, 19, 18 years. And look at the consequences. Look at all the neighborliness in the Middle East. And look at the decency in the quiet city streets. I'm being ironic, obviously. (laughs) Right. That's what's been accomplished after 18 years of killing people. Has violence worked? Has the military force worked? I'm also curious about what we get wrong about veterans. What do we get wrong about veterans? We get wrong, thank you for your service. It's like receiving a Hallmark card that has been prepackaged in a few words and you get it over and over. It's perfunctory. It feels as if someone hasn't thought about it. Mm. And does it really even mean it? Or only means it in a generic, gotta do it kind of way. Also, those five words are a substitute for thinking about what it is you really want to say. On top of that, those words are issued in such a way as the same people don't want to hear the stuff you and I have been talking about. The ugliness, the what has it done to you feeling. How, how do you sleep at night? They, they, they don't want to look at the bodies. They don't want to look at the gore. They don't want to talk about it much. Well, again, many Americans will listen to this and say, oh, this guy hates his country. That's not true. I love my country. But that doesn't mean I love all it does any more than I, I love my children. But I don't love all they do. I don't like it when they lie to me and when they misbehave when they cheat. I don't like that, but I still love them. My love for my country is such that I feel that part of my obligation as a writer, but also as just a human being, is to carry uh, a sense of reason. 
and rationality and even outrage. Another thing we get wrong with veterans, I think, is that we're all kind of homogeneous. We're all alike. Ah, oh, that's a Vietnam vet. And they're all kind of the same. My war buddies, I'm sure, would disagree with, probably 90% of them would disagree with a lot of what I've had to say today. It doesn't fit their view of themselves. They essentially view themselves as victims of, a, of the media, of an uncaring America. I feel responsible for my own fate. I didn't have to go to Vietnam. I could have gone to jail. Mm -hmm. I could have gone to Canada. Could have and didn't. I raised my hand and joined the Army knowing that I shouldn't be doing this and opposing the war. So my sense of, uh, the, of causation has to do with something wrong with me, a weakness of not being able to utter the word no. Couldn't do it as a young man. I still have trouble. I didn't say no to you when you asked me to be on your podcast. <laughs> I, I wanted I'm, to say no. <laughs> now I'm glad I did it. Many people believe no is not a patriotic word. What you said about love, mm -hmm. many people believe that the love it or leave it response is the right response. That we either have to love the country the way it is or, or we, we're not entitled to right. be here. And so it brooks no criticism. It brooks no saying no. It defines patriotism as complete acquiescence. How do you think about that yourself as somebody who has wrestled with these thoughts a lot? I live by a trial and error kind of, not just mentality, but kind of ethic that I find very little in the world that I can make absolute declarations about. Every time I say something that has a declarative sense to it, I think of modifications and amendments and, and exceptions all the time and virtually everything. The act of being human is kind of the act of surrender to ambiguity and uncertainty and all the unknowns around us that in some cases are unknowable. The best we can do as human beings is to try to have a sense of decency mixed with a kind of humility, a willingness to open ourselves to the word maybe. Maybe we're doing the right thing in the Middle East, or maybe we're not. Hmm. What I guess mostly disturbs me in the modern era is the absolutist rhetoric that I alluded to hmm. earlier, that no-doubt stuff. That worries me. And we're being handed it on so many fronts still. Everybody is so confident in the slam dunk. You know, so much of what you're talking about here you have wrestled with and struggled with out loud in your stories. There's a beautiful sentence that I just love in your book, The Things They Carried, and it begins, but this too is true. Stories can save us. Do you think stories can save us from some of these worst instincts that you're describing in your writing and that we're discussing here? Yes, but the emphasis is on the word can. doesn't mean they will. Mm. It means they have the, the possibility of saving us. It's a response against a sort of vague, amorphous absolutism, but a story is exactly the opposite. It's specific. This man falls in love with that woman. Mm -hmm. A story has a quality of specificity. 
where when you're lying in bed late at night reading a novel or a short story and it entrances you, you you're kind of in the book you're rooting for that character and against that one and through the intimacy of lying in bed with a book enduring what I endured, or my mom and dad, what they endured as their son was off at war, and what my children are enduring. There's an intimacy in it that loses abstraction, and it makes you ask questions of yourself. Would I send my child to a war? What kind of war? Would it have to be super righteous? I think the way to the human heart and to the human mind and to the human tear ducts and to the nape of the human neck is through a story. A story is aimed at the whole human being and not just the rational aspect. Right. It's aimed at your emotions. The stories can help us kind of make our minds up about things. You've written that story truth is emotional truth, partly in answer to why you chose to write fiction. We're living in an era when even policymakers seem to operate on a level of not believing in facts anymore, where reality is, seems to be what people make of it. Is story, old-fashioned storytelling and fiction still able to pack the punch that you're describing? Well, I think it radically depends. It depends on the quality of the prose. Are the sentences well-made? Does it have music? Can it touch your soul? I don't think truth or falsehood is necessarily the determining element, though. I think you enter a novel knowing that what you're about to read didn't happen, necessarily. Mm -hmm. might be based on what happened, but you expect imagination as a part of the experience. On the other hand, <laughs> to modify that, you're absolutely right. There is a real world of fact out there. So far as we can apprehend fact, sometimes fact is, cannot be apprehended. That is, we don't know them all. Mm -hmm. History doesn't tell us. History generalizes, it selects, it compresses. But you don't get reported all the facts. So that's why the things they carried is written the way it is. Vietnam as an experience was a war of absolute and overwhelming ambiguity. The only certainty was how ambiguous it all was. Mm -hmm. Who's for us? Who's against us? Are we doing the right thing? Am I going to die tonight, tomorrow night? It's all gray and swirling around you. All this ambiguity, mm -hmm. it's like living in a great ghostly fog when you're in combat. And truth is a hard thing to grasp, even factual truth. Firefight ends, you sit around, kind of repairing the, your fixing all the leaks in your eyes and trying to get yourself together and you're talking to another guy and, and he was looking that way during the firefight north and you were looking south and his recollection of fact is completely incomprehensible really? to you. He right. didn't see what you saw right. and vice right. versa. So, so what you apprehend in the world and what we call fact to one guy that that's the truth and nothing but and to me, something completely contradictory is the truth and nothing but. So we, we behave in the world as if we have access to some treasure of fact that I don't think we have access to. And war accentuates that. How was it to write about that for the wildly popular TV show, This Is Us, which is set here in Pittsburgh? It was a, a joy. I mean, it was... 
I was relieved of responsibility. In a, in a novel, I'm responsible. But in co-writing two episodes for This Is Us, it, there, there are so many people who are involved. I had a co-writer, in one case the creator of the show, a great guy named Dan Fogelman, Pittsburgh area native. It was his show. He conceived the show, the characters. But he was open to me. He, I think he wanted to please me. And he went out of his way to take ideas that I threw out and use them in the show. The killing of a little Vietnamese boy was based on a, an incident that occurred in my unit. Some guys along the South China Sea, American soldiers, went fishing with hand grenades. They got in a little boat and they went out in the South China Sea and they started throwing hand grenades and blowing the fish up. I had mentioned this during a meeting with Dan and you could see a light bulb was going up. He was going to use this somehow. It was a casualty of war. A dead guy blew himself up mm. doing this grenade thing. He dropped the grenade. It was wet, slippery, fell in the boat, and he killed himself by accident. And in the case of the finished product, the finished show, This Is Us, that episode, it happened to a little Vietnamese boy along with an American soldier who died. So Dan acquired a piece of my experience transformed it to fit the needs of his show and I thought it was shattering and really really good there's a sense of your your a colleague is there are many colleagues the actors were colleagues other writers would chip in things Dan would then the set decorator the costume people and I would argue for certain things I thought the uniforms were looked brand new and too dark and green and and the costume people tr tried to dirty them up and make them bleached out but they never quite succeeded mm -hmm. and everybody's doing different elements of this thing how a show ever actually appears on television seems to be a kind of miracle <laughs> <laughs> that uh some of the best things were happened by accident that appeared in the two episodes that I was involved in. One was a shot of a soldier who had just lost a friend who had died by stepping on a landmine. And it's the next day, and he's sitting on a dock along a river. And there's a long shot of him, and the sun is just coming up. And none of us, except the actor and a few of the photography people, were on the very few were on the set yet. It was very early in the morning. And the cinematographer decided, I'm going to take a shot of this guy sitting at the end of the, he's carrying a, he stands up and throws this football out into the river. It's a beautifully photographed, emotional scene. They, the kid's character had been playing football with his friend before he died. Mm. There's no dialogue. It's just a soldier grieving throwing a football into a river throwing his youth into the river and his love for his friend into the river it was shot by kind of accident it wasn't planned it was but it was a highlight of the script it said more without any dialogue than anything that i wrote so let's talk about your new book for a moment it's called dad's maybe book you write we are all writing our maybe books full of maybe tomorrows and each maybe tomorrow brings another maybe tomorrow, and then another, until the last line of the last page receives its period. Sort of feels to me like the sort of thing one could only write at 72, one couldn't write that at 16. But what is the dad's maybe book about? I, I'm tentative in all that 
every word that comes out of my mouth I'm tentative, including the sentence I just uttered. Mm. I can tell an anecdote. This is where story is better than than declaring. So I'm at work on this book. I've been I've been at it for what, 15 years or so, off and on, mostly off, mostly just trying to be a good dad. I gave up writing. I was tired of the loneliness of writing. I was tired of the. I felt I felt entrapped by my own profession, sitting alone in a room in my underwear day after day after day after day after day after day after day, struggling to make a decent sentence, and then one that was fresh and I hadn't written before or read before. I was sick of it. I had two children late in life, my only two, and I said, I'm going to be a good dad, if nothing else. If writing gets in the way of that, I'm not going to do it. And I did it. I surrendered something that was beloved to me, making stories. Much mm. as I hated it, I loved the endorphin rush when a good sentence was written and right. one that I thought, that'll wake up some librarian and dubuque, <laughs> <laughs> you know, get them out of their lethargy. And then one day, I don't know how many years ago, eight years ago, seven years ago, my youngest son, who then was, I don't know, six years old, seven years old, said, how's your book going? And I said, I, I don't even know if it'll be a book. I said, it'll probably end up in the trash can. And a couple of days later, he said, well, I've been thinking about it, Dad. What is your title going to be? And I said, I, I don't have the slightest idea, Dad. I can't even get the book written. <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you just call it what it is? Call it your maybe book. And I jotted down that idea, and I threw it in with a whole pile of notes, the things that maybe I would put in this maybe book of mine. And uh, Tad started to leave the room as I, after I jotted down, and he said, Dad, do they pay you for writing these books? And I said, well, sometimes if they're, <laughs> if they're good. And he said, well, do they, do they pay extra for the titles? And I, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he, he left the room, and he came back with an IOU <laughs> for, in case I used his title. It's, it's mostly a memoir, I would say, if you had to describe the book about my life. It's selective memoir, childhood, life as a writer, life as a soldier, life after the war, and life as a father. It's a book that is directed toward my kids. Every chapter is things I wish my dad had said to me about his own life and what he was thinking about. I, he was a mystery to me. Mm. I didn't want my kids to have a dead father that they never got to know. Just words from their father, almost like a message in a bottle. You throw it out and hope it'll, when the kids are 40 years old and they're middle-aged, they'll know something um, about a, a man they really didn't get to know very well. They're not, even at ages 16 and 14 now, they're not much curious. They've never asked me a single thing about Vietnam, ever. They don't, they're not at all impressed that their dad has just written a book in which their names appear on almost every page. They haven't even, as far as I know, opened it. And it's been lying around in the house now for about a month in the advanced reading copy. So the maybe book comes, maybe they'll read it. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll like it, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll agree with some of the things I've said that they did, and maybe, maybe they'll say, it didn't happen that way, it happened another way. 
there's a there's a nobility and a sublimity to the word maybe that I find human and and wonderful. It seems a human thing to be maybe about the world. I love this concept of maybe. I also love that you wrestle with with how it comes off because it you know it reminds me of the saying that all generalizations are wrong, including this one. Including you know? this one, right, <laughs> so, right? So, and you clearly are a man who shies from absolutes. I think in some ways you feel that you've been you you describe yourself as not a victim, but that you've been victimized by absolutes. In I, your I, life. They've caused trouble yeah. in my life yeah. for sure. I can't thank you enough for being with us. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I. I really appreciate your courage and your bravery and your way of looking at the world and the maybeness of it all. I Great think pleasure. Uh, I wish I'd been more articulate, but I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that was pretty darn good. <laughs> so the the name of our podcast is We Can Be, and I always like to end by asking, you know, it's an incomplete sentence. How would you complete that sentence? We can be... We can be f- fully human. I don't know what else. I mean, I don't know how to. There's so many things that come to my head. (laughs) I rejected like 4,000 possibilities in that millisecond there. Well, fully human is good. I like it. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Grant. Thank you. Tim said the way to a heart, the head, the nape of the neck is a story. Tim's stories have brought what he has seen and experienced alive for the world to know, feel, and reckon with. As Tim said, wars don't end once we sign peace treaties. They affect lives for generations to come in ways many of us may never fully know. Likewise, Tim's writing has moved millions of readers in profound ways he may not even realize. We're grateful to him for the art he has given us and sharing so eloquently and truthfully what he has carried.